Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast with me, Jenny Plant from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow those existing client relationships so your agency business can thrive. Welcome to episode 71. Today, we're going to be talking about why it's important to cover yourself legally when growing an agency. Ryan Lisk joins me from Hybrid Legal, and he talks to me about some of the risks agencies take by not having the right contracts in place, the different legal areas agencies need to pay attention to at every stage of their growth. And he also shares examples of how easily you can leave your agency business exposed when you don't cover all of the most relevant legal areas. So let's go over to the intro now. So today's episode is with Ryan Lisk. Now, Ryan is the founder of Hybrid Legal, which is a company that provides legal advice to business owners. And the reason I've invited Ryan in is because he does so much work with agencies and so has loads of experience working with creative agencies and is so familiar with the typical legal areas that can trip agencies up. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Jenny, for a very kind introduction and also for having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to obviously the conversation we're about to have. Me too. And when we had a conversation last week, Ryan, I was so struck by the detail that you gave me. I thought, I can't believe that there are not quite a few agencies out there with the same problems. So I'm excited about getting into these questions as well. So let's start off just with a brief kind of, why did you start the company? Why did you start Hybrid Legal? So I started when I recognised when I was studying law at uni that there was a, a real challenge with helping business owners with affordable legal services. And the reason why I knew that at quite an early stage when I was studying was because I was helping a, a startup business with all of their legal work. They couldn't afford the advice from a law firm. They found law firms quite difficult to approach. And when they were quoted certain fees, you know, it was just unreachable for them. So they used me, somebody that, that wasn't qualified, didn't really have much experience at all. But they still thought, you know what, we'll have a go with Ryan and see if he can help. And that was really where it started because, you know, it taught me very quickly how law is applied in practice for a busy business that's growing. And I really enjoyed it. And then it wasn't until I was looking to go on and do a training contract that I was working for a, a bigger regional law firm part time and I absolutely hated the culture. And that's where I saw, you know, a big difference between, you know, working for a business, you know, that's hungry to grow and then working for a traditional law firm where the cultures were very different. And I thought there's got to be a way of offering something in the middle, which helps these business owners with affordable legal advice that's easy to understand. And also doing it in a way that's going to be more fulfilling for the legal team as well, because a lot of the lawyers that I was working with were really unhappy with the profession. And I mean, I won't bore you with the, the inner details of that, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a go at doing this myself and founded Hybrid. And just give us a flavour of the types of clients you have on the agency side, but also how you work differently to perhaps the firms that you were used to working for. Sure. So in terms of the types of agencies, we work with agencies from, you know, quite small social media companies through to specialist software development houses, right through to PR and global communications businesses. So, you know, the range of agencies really does vary. And in terms of, you know, what are they using us for? How are we working with them that's different to, you know, other law firms? I think the main pull for them is our subscription model, where they're able to outsource their legal support to us. We become their legal agony arm, for want of a better word, and they're passing us a whole number of things from, you know, master service agreements they might currently have that are just horrible and they want them, you know, completely stripped down into a format where it's nice and easy for their clients to understand, but it still protects their business through to dealing with freelance agreements, helping with intellectual property and protecting different forms of intellectual property. It might be specialist license agreements if they're developing an app, for example. You know, we might be working on things like that. Or it might be the more day-to-day -day HR and employment queries with their team that they need our support with. And they're able to do that with us 
by paying a fixed monthly fee, which gives them that legal support. So they've already got it budgeted for, so they're not really receiving any unexpected bills. But we do work with a number of agencies as well on a pay-as-you-go basis where, you know, we'll just scope and quote depending on what it is that they need and they just pay as they go along. So I think the big thing for us is being transparent with fees, you know, being very upfront about fees, helping an agency understand whether, you know, they can invest in our support, whether it's the right stage or not to invest in that kind of support. And if they are, you know, we make sure that we take the time to really get to know them and give them a solution that works for their particular business rather than using a cookie cutter approach. So yes, I hope that that kind of answers your question. Spot on, spot on. And I also forgot to say at the beginning, actually, that I've seen lots of compliments about working with you from the likes of Spencer Gallagher, who's obviously, you know, introduced you to the agency Nomics community and just some really great feedback. So whatever you're doing, you're doing it really, really well. And obviously, I think for me, that sounds like a fantastic way of going subscription model or, you know, pay as you go. So it sounds very flexible. So if there's someone listening that's kind of growing an agency, have you got any advice for kind of the key areas they need to be considering from a legal perspective, like when they go from maybe a one-man band or maybe two or three and then jump to maybe a one million turnover and then a five million turnover, is there any kind of grading of legal matters that you think are more pressing at each level? That's a really good question. I like the idea of breaking it down with the journey of a, a newly formed agency through to its growth and then through to potentially an exit. So I would say that, you know, when the agency starts, it's a really good idea to invest in a suite of contracts, which sounds like a massive turnoff. I appreciate it. You kind of go, oh, God, contracts. <laughs> I've got more things to invest in rather than bloody contracts. But the truth is you can get contracts cost effectively, particularly in startup phase. You know, you can look at templates online as an example. It's not one that I always recommend, but if you really must and you really have to and budget is very tight, then have a go at looking at some templates online. And what I mean by templates and that suite of legal documents, definitely think about the contract you're going to have in place with your customers, because when you start out, you're going to be finding your feet on what your proposition is going to be. You think you've nailed the proposition, but even as a non-marketeer, I know for a fact that in five years' time, your proposition is going to be very good. You would have learned some lessons along the way. You would have found out what works and what doesn't. You'll pivot a few times. you know. So I would definitely have you know a sensible contract to begin with that covers you for what you're going to be providing. It doesn't need to be war and peace. You know, I think the key things that you need to be thinking about is making sure your client's going to pay you, making sure that if you're going to rely on your client to deliver content, make that really clear that it's an obligation of theirs. Because I think the big thing for web development agencies in particular would be clients getting upset when delivery deadlines are missed. But of course, there's always two sides to every story. And it's usually because the client has delayed on providing key information, which has enabled the deadline to be pushed. But of course, they conveniently forget that. So I think, you know, really looking at your scope and quote document, how you're managing expectations and how you're communicating very clearly with your client. Look, this is what we're going to commit to. We're going to commit to delivering this particular piece of work that you've asked us to do to a really good standard, following the brief that you've given us. I think really important that you get a detailed brief from the client if you can. But this is what we need from you. And we need you to commit to paying us on time because we're going to work hard for you. So really making sure that you're making that nice and clear. And any additional obligations, like the example I mentioned a moment ago, such as, right, we're going to need you to provide this kind of content in order for us to actually continue the development of the project. Make sure you spell that out to them because I think, you know, the clients are very similar to the types of clients that we work with. They're busy business owners or business leaders that, you know, seeing you as the supplier, you are just a supplier to them. You are the means to an end to fix a particular problem before they move on, you know, so they're really busy and it's just making sure that you're super clear about it. And you talk about this a lot, actually, Jenny, with obviously when you coach the account managers and what to do. So I think that dovetails quite nicely, but I would definitely say the client agreement will be key. I would also, if there's going to be more than one of you starting this business, which there often is, the shareholders agreement. 
I think that's a big one. You know, whether you're going into business as a limited company and there's going to be more than one of you, or you're going in as a partnership, get your partnership agreement sorted, your co-founders agreement. There are differences, but I would just think about the contract that will go in place between you and your business partners, particularly while the sun's shining. Because when it starts chucking it down with rain, you don't want to be up on the roof trying to fix it. It's horrible and it can be really messy. So I would say that think about eventualities such as, right, what happens if you want to bring on another investor or a shareholder, another director to the table? How will that work? What if one of you isn't happy with that? What about if one of you in the future has a change of heart? We've certainly seen over the past few years with the pandemic, there's been a few epiphany moments where people have had that time off to reflect and they've kind of thought, you know what, actually, this isn't for me. I'm going to go a separate direction. And I mean, whilst, you know, quite a lot of people can resolve it on a handshake because they're in a good place, actually, if you're not in a good place and you do have a difference of opinion, having a nice legal contracts that commits both of you to having a discussion in a particular way and agreeing to certain processes to follow when it comes to things like valuing the company that's a biggie you know and and how you exit and when you can exit i think those are really key points you know because one person's value can be very different to the other person's value depending on what side of the fence you're sitting on if you want to leave your value is usually going to be much higher than the person wants to stay so it's just making sure that that's fairly balanced which again you know if you get decent advice with your shareholders agreement your co-founders agreement or that partnership agreement they'll talk you through you know how you can go about that so that's i would say probably one of the biggest things to do when you start out so the next thing to look at you know with that suite of contracts give you that good legal foundation would be the contracts that you have in place with any freelancers or contractors that you might be bringing on to help with projects because if you're at an early stage you might not have the cash flow at the moment to bring on employees on payroll. So you might just be using contractors every now and then that have a specialist skill to help with that particular project. I would definitely not lose sight of the importance of having an agreement in place. It doesn't need to be a turn off. It can actually be something that gives peace of mind to the freelancer as well as yourself. And also the client as well, because there are some clients that are not happy with freelancers being used others that are so again you don't want to trip up there it's quite an easy mistake to make so i would just make sure that when you're working with freelancers during those early stages you've got the fundamentals covered their concern is being paid on time and that their time is going to be respected your concern is making sure that they're going to deliver on time to a really good standard, not embarrass you in front of the client. And most importantly, they're not going to run away with the client will be difficult generally in the future, particularly with things like confidentiality. So it's making sure that you're dealing with those points, as well as intellectual property ownership as well. Because if you have a freelancer that's created something bespoke, you know, that's specific for that particular project, and there's a form of intellectual property that's been created, that's capable of actually being owned by the client, but there's no clear paper trial to document that, it can be really messy in the future when one day your client wants to sell the business or raise investment and the due diligence takes place and they knock your door to say, can you just talk us through this particular project that you worked on, where the intellectual property sits for this particular piece of work? We just need proof of ownership and you shrug your shoulders and say oh that was done by you know so and so a couple of years ago freelancer that you know in a beach in mexico smoking a cigar now <laughs> you know it just doesn't look professional whereas if you're able to say yeah that was so and so's project here's the contract which confirms that they agreed to assign all of the rights in that project to us once we had paid them and we in turn have agreed to assign all of those rights to your client once they had paid all of the money due so you can see the nice beautiful trail here so that is a real good thing to put in place now and the investment that you'll need to make in that simple process will probably be much less than a thousand pounds if you do it right compared to if you have to knee jerk it when the client knocks the door asking about that trial and you're then scrabbling around thinking oh god 
I now need to try and, you know, play this tactical game of negotiation with freelancer that it's not worth anything, but actually could be worth a fortune. But equally, it can be a good opportunity for the client as well, which we'll come on to later on during this conversation. But I'm going to pause there. Is that all making sense so far? This is fantastic. And I'm sure loads of people are thinking, oh, I better have a look at my contracts and see what I've got in there. Just one small question. You mentioned, you know, some clients don't like you using freelancers. Do you advise agencies always to kind of bring that up? Because surely there are some freelancers that get used at the last minute and you wouldn't necessarily draw that to the client's attention. What's your advice on that? So my advice on that specific question is just make sure that you read the terms in place between you and your client very carefully. Now, the chances are if you've put your own terms in place and you've had them drafted properly, it will enable you to use a freelancer whenever you like, so long as you obviously have a suitable agreement in place to the same obligations that you've agreed to commit yourself to in the contract with your client. The problem starts to unfold when your client is a nice big client and has their own master service agreement or framework agreement where they want you to sign up to it. You know, so I won't name any particular big names, but there's a number out there where when you dig into clause 38.6 paragraph B, you know, it will say, and by the way, subcontractors are not permitted without the prior written consent of the client, you know, and that's your kicker. So you then have to flag that clause, get the prior written consent and go to your main lead project manager with the client, your main key point of contact and say, right, we need to bring on a specialist third party. Are you happy with that? And the chances are they'll say, yeah, that's cool. We just want the project done to a good standard. Make sure you've got that documented, put it in the file along with all of the other materials of that project and tick, job done. But when you don't do that, that's when it can be really slippery. Fantastic advice. I'm actually thinking about it now. I mean, I've known examples of very small agencies, like agencies that are just starting that managed to land, you know, a PLC as a client. And inevitably, like you said, the client in that scenario typically creates and gives you the contract to sign. And then I can't believe that any agency wouldn't get it looked at legally. I mean, I hope that they wouldn't try to do it themselves because I mean, it's legal speak, isn't it? And we're not used to that. Yeah, you will be amazed at how many put their head in the sand and just sign it off and wing it. It is quite worrying, actually, that, you know, certain, certain, and not just agencies either, I'm not just talking about agencies, but I think businesses in general, they seem to lack the acknowledgement of how important contracts are, particularly on a business-to-business relationship because the contract is usually what it says when you're in the b2b arena when you're in the b2c arena obviously you have consumer law in place to protect you as the consumer you can buy something online and return it whenever you like within 14 days you know you have that protection regardless of whether it was mentioned in the terms but when you're dealing with another business you need to be really careful with what that contract says. And there's some really good examples over the last decade or so of big companies that have got it spectacularly wrong. I mean, a really good one is, I think it was the Jet 2 case with Blackpool Airport. And they were having a dispute over what was actually meant by best endeavours and reasonable endeavours. And to cut a very long story short, it's worth looking into this case separately, just in terms of why you should always check your contracts. The Blackpool Airport originally agreed when Jet2 were first starting out, they would essentially help the airline get their feet on the ground. They would give them nice timetables to bring their flights in and out. And they were operating outside of normal business hours for quite a considerable period of time, to the extent that I think the FD kind of saw it and thought, this is not looking good. We're trading at a significant loss now by keeping our opening hours out late just to facilitate the Jet 2 popularity. So they essentially said to them, right, we love your business, but 
we need to actually go back to normal nine to five operating hours. And if you want to operate beyond, you know, the usual operating times, you're going to need to pay extra for that because we're trading at a loss. And Jet 2's lawyers were like, ah, don't think so. Here's a contract here, which has said that you will use your best endeavours to promote the success of our airline. And we believe that that means that you will open your airport beyond normal operating hours to encourage us to succeed. And of course, Blackpool Airport completely disagreed with that point. So there's no bloody way that that's what it means. They went to court. And sadly for Blackpool Airport, the judge confirmed that actually, had you put reasonable endeavours, you're absolutely right, Blackpool Airport, normal operating hours would have sufficed. But because you said best, that means you have to go above and beyond. Even if you trade at a loss, you must go above and beyond. So that was a real stinger for the airport and a great win for the lawyers at uh, Jet2. So, and just words, just the slip of the words there can be really tricky. Now, that's just, you know, quite a big example. And I'll give you an example later on as well of, you know, areas where agencies can easily avoid legal traps, you know, what to look out for. So we'll come back to that later. Great. I mean, this is really good stuff. And like you said, the wording is just going to have such a bearing on it as well. So we're talking about agencies that are starting out. You talked about the client agreement. We've talked about making sure that they have shareholder agreement in place and the proper legal structure. Also, if using freelancers and contractors. So that's brilliant. So what about when they get a little bit bigger or, you know, progress even further? What other legal Yes, this kind of loops back to my comment earlier about, you know, they'll start on day one with a particular vision and then in five years time, they would have been on a journey both from, you know, an internal culture perspective with staff that may have, you know, joined and then left and they've learned some lessons through to, right, we've worked with that dodgy client got that spectacularly wrong let's pivot and offer this as a proposition or that market's now dried up let's do this so there would have been a lot of changes since that early day of using the suite of contracts so now is the time to actually revisit your contracts and actually look at right do these still work for the agency in terms of where it is now and where it's going to be going when it reaches the million mark and beyond so it's a good time to check in again on process List out the mistakes and the challenges and the near misses, because chances are you may have had a fabulous time over the last five years or so, but you may have had a few near misses where you thought, God, we got lucky there. And we usually want to know about all of those. So we can then think about how can we cover those off fairly in the agreements, whether that's with the employees or whether it's with the clients, the suppliers. You know, you've got five years worth or so of of data there that is really helpful when it comes to reviewing your existing processes. But when you're at that point, you're usually going to have a little bit of a headcount. You know, you're going to have a handful of staff. So again, you know, making sure you've got some good policies and processes in place and you've invested the time to speak to an expert just to give you the rubber stamp of approval on what you're currently doing. That's definitely key. And at that stage, you might also have retainers in place with clients as well. You might have suffered your first couple of cases of scope creep. Again, it's looking at, right, well, what can we do now to just make sure that's covered off? And you might have had a few data protection near misses as well with subject access requests, maybe a breach, who knows, hopefully not, but it happens. You know, So again, it's a brilliant time to sit down and re-review the structure ready for when you tip past the million mark. Amazing. And then following that, do you also help with exits? Do you get involved from an exit perspective? 100%. We love it. I mean, we love working with agencies of all sizes, but, you know, it's lovely to be able to help an agency sell the business. You know, they've worked really hard to do and it's become a major milestone usually for them to sell. Not in all cases. Some cases, you know, it can be a bit of a distress sale or a distress merger. But uh, in most cases that we deal with, it's usually for all of the right reasons where it's time now to hand over to the new owners. And that's usually a good thing for the team that's moving over with them and also for the owners that are exiting the business. So it's definitely something that we can help with. And actually, it was really nice to be able to attend the Cactus event last week in London, where there were four panellists that had all successfully exited their agencies. And it was quite interesting because... 
I couldn't help myself but ask the question of, you know, how did you find the due diligence process? And was there anything, you know, if you had your time again, that would have enabled it to go a bit smoother? And there was quite a consistent answer among all of them, which was, yeah, we really wish we got our contracts sorted because there were moments of, you know, going through cupboards, trying to find paperwork and, uh, you know, rushing around thinking, oh, shit, we've not got these kind of things. Excuse my French. But, you know, they're thinking, oh, wh- where is it all? And uh, Of course, I smiled because it's one of those I told you so moments that happens right at the bloody end. So I think for anyone that's listening to this, that is thinking about exiting in the future, you don't have to use us, you can use whoever you like, but definitely invest the time with someone to start getting your business ready from an exit perspective. Because one of the panellists actually said that one of the best bits of advice that he could give to the room was build your business so it's ready to sell, regardless of whether you're going to sell the business or not you know, and make it so you can easily make yourself redundant, even if you want to stay working in the business full time. Because if you do that, you end up with a fantastic business. And I really echo those sentiments. There's a brilliant book about that as well, called Build to Sell by John Warrillow. I'd 100% recommend reading that for anyone listening that's growing a business. But I would definitely say a big part of that is, you know, getting friendly with a good lawyer, that can help you tidy up the state of affairs internally because it's not only going to protect you, but the buyers are going to want to see it during due diligence, you know, and if you're not going to be selling, you might be raising investment. The investors' lawyers are going to want to see it as well because if you haven't got it, it's only going to impact the value that you sell for or it's going to create more time, stress and expense getting it fixed and you quantify that and compare it to the bloody legal fees that you'll pay for a sensible firm to do it. And guess what's cheaper? <laughs> so, I mean, it's an insurance policy, isn't it, for that piece of business that you have and also your own business. I mean, there's so many reasons to seek proper legal counsel when you are going through this journey of growing your own agency. It's just, I mean, for all of the reasons that you've said, I mean, to that point, without scaring people, you did share a few examples last time of where things weren't buttoned up legally. And I think this is really valuable for people listening to kind of hear some real life examples of maybe near misses, maybe when it went really badly, just so that they can benefit from someone else's mistakes. Sure thing. So I've thought about this actually, Jenny, since our last conversation. And there's three quick stories that I'd like to share with you. The first is about the laid back and disorganized e-commerce agency. The second is about a playground project. And the third is about an expensive copier. So those are the three. So if we start with the laid back e-commerce agency... This particular e-commerce agency, they were really good in respect of, you know, building and developing really nice looking websites. They usually performed very well from an SEO perspective because they had an absolute wizard in-house that was great at SEO and pay-per-click campaigns. You know, so they kind of traded off of his reputation for a good few years. I think they recently lost him actually to a competitor, which doesn't surprise me in many respects. But anyway, the point being, they were really good. They had, I think, no more than about 20 or so clients they were offering a hosting service to. Because usually if you build a website for a client, the chances are you're going to take care of the hosting as well, usually through something with Amazon, Rackspace, whoever it is that you would use. Most are on AWS now. But back when this particular incident happened, You know, it was actually a different hosting provider that I won't name just to be professional. But the incident happened when the web hosting provider, this particular laid back e-commerce agency was using, they had a major mishap where one of their servers was completely wiped. And that particular server hosted all of the websites that this particular agency was looking after. So, of course, anyone that's watching this would be thinking, well, yeah, that's absolutely fine because they would have run, you know, daily, weekly backups of those websites. And that was the first thing that I said when I took the call. And unfortunately not. They had a bit of a blip internally, were very busy and just hadn't got round to it. Now, most of these things you can automate now, but going back when this happened, I think it was about six, seven years ago now, I don't think it was a thing. Clearly, it wasn't for this particular agency. So for them, it was a real brown pants moment 
because their phone was ringing off the hook with the clients whose e-commerce businesses that were their main revenue streams had just switched off. And of course, who are you going to phone? You're going to phone the developer to say, what the frick's going on? Can you get it back up within the next five minutes? And of course, they couldn't do that. So they were saying to me, so where, where, where do we stand with this, Ryan? I said, okay, so just just talk me through the contract that you put in place with them. You know, have we got anything in there which sets out, you know, the scope of your hosting service and their uh, liability here? Because we know that it's not technically your fault. It is your fault for being sloppy with not doing backups. However, we've got a third party here that's at fault. So we need to see their service level agreement they've put in place with you to see if there's anything we can do there. But we also need to see whatever they've flowed down to disclaim liability for. I just hope that you've done exactly the same with your contracts. And he just looks at me, wow, I could just sense blank face on the other end of the phone. We haven't got anything in place. We didn't really think we needed it, uh, which, you know, my <laughs> response was, well, look, I think this is very much a case of you need to go and get that goodwill bucket and you need to start digging deep into that bucket with your clients, you know, and you need to really help them out here because I think if they instruct their lawyers, if they take legal advice, they are going to be all over you and it's going to be very expensive. So your best bet now is to work with them and come to a sensible arrangement to get their websites back up and running and do not charge them for the pleasure of doing that because guess what you will end up paying a lot more if any one of them gets legal advice so in that instance where there's no contract in place so what you're saying is the client has the upper hand anyway because if there's an absence of a contract what does it default to So here's the thing, and it's a very good question, Jenny. So in the absence of a contract, you're then looking at an implied contract. Is there any form of contract that we can see, whether it's via email correspondence, you can even have verbal contracts. But in this case, it was very much proposal documents, sets out a nice, lovely hosting service, which sets out that they will get backups, they will be hosted for this particular monthly investment to which the client was charging for that monthly cost, but they weren't delivering what they said they were going to deliver, which was delivering a hosting service that is going to be backed up. So they were in breach of their own proposal and therefore breach of the contract that was formed between the two parties. So it was quite hook, line and sinker in that regard. Wow. Okay. So the implied contract. So if anyone's listening, thinking, actually, we had a verbal agreement to do this, or there's no kind of written contract contract, it will always default to the latest documentation that's passed by between the two parties. So that's interesting to know. That's right. All of that will be taken into account. And that's why, you know, we recommend another quick tip for any listeners that, you know, perhaps, you know, are quite laid back with contracts, but equally, they don't want to be held accountable for anything they agree in email correspondence, which becomes even more important when your team grows and you've got account managers that might be selling and promising certain things. Just make sure that you have you know, the golden words in your email disclaimers, as annoying as they may be. Just make sure that you're saying that, you know, anything that's agreed in email is subject to contract. The word subject to contract really should be appearing in your email disclaimer because that's essentially saying that, look, you know, what may be agreed in email could be completely different to what the contract says and the contract will take priority. That's key. But of course, it requires you to have a contract in the first place. So that's the other kicker. But I mean, in this case with this laid back agency, they really did deserve to pay out on that because they were sloppy with the service that they were offering. You know, and I think if you're not offering a reasonable service, there is a risk that someone is going to pull you up on that. And how much was the liability? Did they have to compensate for loss of sales? That's where it could have gone. That's where it could have been pretty high risk because consequential loss is usually disclaimed in a well-drafted contract, you know, and you usually have a well-constructed limitation of liability clause. You have insurance as well. And again, making sure that the professional indemnity insurance you have is equal to what you're saying in the contract that you're going to be liable for if somebody actually has you banged to rights for something. But to answer your question with that particular example, I have no idea how much it cost them in development time in the end, because I know that they wore most of their own costs with bringing in developers to obviously help bring those websites back up again from very old versions. 
clients. And I know I think they agreed with some of their clients that they would offer certain forms of compensation by way of free services in the future. But otherwise, you know, I mean, we, we didn't take on that client in the end. A, not the sort of business that we wanted to work with. And B, they were in enough financial trouble. They couldn't cover the, uh, the fees to help them. And our fees are very um how can I put it? they're reasonable they're not they're not unfair but it, we gave them the free advice that they needed which was look you know know when to compromise today's the day to compromise and actually start negotiating use that goodwill and just work with them to get through it and that seemed to work from what I've understood it's funny because the other day I was talking to someone dissimilar situation slightly similar where the owner of the business had put a an additional clause into the contract. They were so overwhelmed with excitement at winning this business that they were like 120% guaranteed that we were always going to deliver. But something happened and they couldn't. And this clause was in there that the owner had put in there to say that they would compensate for, you know, the loss of sales, which I think was done in such a kind of a big gesture because we knew that we would never fail. So Maybe there's, I don't know if anyone's listening, thinking, yes, we have got excited and put extra clauses in there just because at the time, but things change, don't they? This is the problem. Yeah. And that goes back to that question you asked earlier, Jenny, about, you know, as you grow as a business and as you learn things, definitely make sure that you're then checking your contracts to make sure that there's no updates you can make, which would counter that problem or that near miss again in the future. That's so important. Mm. So that was the first story. The second story was with the playground projects, which is one of my favorites as far as demonstrating just how easy it is to get on the wrong side of intellectual property with a client project. So this particular project, it was a branding agency that was working with a local authority. And the local authority had given them the brief to essentially help them come up with a brand and a concept for adventure playground in a particular part of the UK and the client did a really good job as far as the visuals and the concept the council was delighted with that particular work and delivered the project and a few months later or so I think it was about seven or eight months in the council had just put out the signage in these playgrounds and was starting to really roll it out and the lawyers for the owner of the registered trademark of the brand that this particular agency had come up with for this project sent a cease and desist letter to the local authority. And of course, the first thing that the local authority did was look at, you know, who actually created that brand. It was the branding agency that came up with the name and the concept and slung it over to them and said, what's this about? And again, comes back to contracts there was no contract in place between the agency and the council, which enabled the agency to have a lovely indemnity in place from the council to confirm that in the event of any third-party intellectual property infringement, the council will hold the agency harmless from any costs of that and recognise that it's the council's sole responsibility to take what the agency creates and run their own intellectual property clearance checks before using it properly. Unfortunately, that was missing. So it was another pinch point for that particular agency when it came to obviously seemingly looking to create something that's now infringed, unknowingly to the agency's point, but if they had their time again, they would have had a sensible contract or they would have just done a quick check, quick clearance check for the sake of a couple hundred quid to make sure that that particular brand isn't already trademarked. So that was another interesting clangor that could have been easily avoided. I think, I mean, coming up with names and branding is a real specialist area, isn't it? And, you know, that goes without saying that you've got to do trademark checks and companies' house, making sure there's no legal entities. But maybe that was just missing or it was a big lesson to learn, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, massively so. And and it can be quite embarrassing as well. 
personally when that happens yeah and and it is daunting but i think it's that classic case of it's it's okay to make mistakes but don't make them twice learn from it and i think the challenge with legal mistakes is they can actually be quite crippling to a business they can be quite fatal particularly from a cost perspective so that's why i don't think lawyers have done a particularly brilliant job over the years of making themselves available and approachable i think they're definitely getting better the profession is definitely getting better in some respects but it's got a long way to go. And I think that's part of the reason why we see uh, such a cavalier approach from businesses. I think, oh, sorry, I'm not going to take legal advice. I'm going to do it myself. And it can go wrong. So I just want to add to that story a little bit, Ryan, because I've obviously been working in agencies for like 30 years. And we've had legal problems with actual taglines, colours, shapes. So it's not just the kind of the word of the brand that's used, the, the brand name, but there's all sorts of elements that are also, you know, already covered. And even a friend of mine was working in the UK, but he had a cease and desist about the tagline he was using from the US, from a US company. So, you know, if there is a branding agency listening, should they be thinking about also territories as well, where the client's proposing to use this brand in different territories? 100%. Yeah. I think if you've got a client that's thinking about using the brand outside of the UK, where they might have, you know, a, a quite a strong presence, or they want to explore a presence in the US, for example, or Canada, then I would definitely say it's a good idea to suggest to the client that they invest in a clearance check for that particular market, just to make sure that the tagline or the name or even the logo device itself, any kind of symbol or devices that are going to be really inherent to that brand, you're just running a check at the start, just to make sure it's okay. Because if you think the UK is quite contentious, over in America, it's a whole new ball game over there. So when I don't mean that disrespectfully, I just mean that they are on it. You know, they are really on it. They take it very seriously and they are not afraid to take action. So it's definitely worth, you know, being thorough as actually the investment of doing those checks versus the cost of if it hits the fan. Like you said earlier, it is like insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what about your third example? The copier, so I'll, I'll make this one quick, so I'm obviously conscious of your time, but the copier, again, it's another lesson. The, the ultimate lesson is please, please, please read your contracts. If you can't be asked to read them, give them to somebody else to read before you sign it, because this one was a really good digital marketing agency based in central London. And one of the directors, a couple of years before COVID kicks off, they signed up to a, a lovely printing unit to be positioned in their office you know so it 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 did all sorts of prints it was a managed print contract and of course covid everybody worked remotely from home they had this gorgeous office collecting dust with a very expensive copier that they could see going out on the PL every month. So they thought you know what we've kind of moved on from relying on that printer we've adapted we'll give the the company a call just to say, look, you know, can you come and pick it up and take it back? Because we're going to move office and downsize. And when one of the directors phoned the managed print company to say, look, can you can you come and collect it? They said, yeah, of course, but you're only, you know, halfway through the term of your contracts. So you're going to have to pay for the remaining term of the contract. Plus, you're going to have to pay for the collection fees and any refurbishment fees that are going to be needed to that machine as well. So we'll send you an email once we've totted all of that up. And he was like, right, okay, fair enough, send it through. They sent it through a few days later, and it was to the tune of just under £8,000 that they wanted in the end. It was extortionate. It was a real long-term contract. It's one that we've seen before. Unfortunately, in that industry in particular, they have these horrendous contracts they will sign businesses up to that will stand up legally, unfortunately. There's not much wiggle room and they know that. And they're very tricky with automatic renewals and also long-term contracts, price rises and hidden charges that are in the contract when you take the time to go through it all. But of course, at the time that you want that printer, like this particular client, it's usually at a time of need, you're busy, you just want it done quickly. The salesman has done a fabulous job of selling the dream and how this is going to achieve everything that you ever wanted. So you're like, yes, sign me up. You've been recommended by a friend. You must be amazing. And then when you want to leave, the reality kicks in and you're like, oh, 
I don't quite like you as much as I thought. The relationship changes. And and in the end, we, we managed to negotiate it. They still had to pay. And it was thousands still, but it wasn't 8,000. But they still had to pay. And it was really bloody annoying for them. And I found for them. So I think the, the learn there is, if you can, don't commit yourself to silly long-term contracts. And when I mean long-term, if you can avoid two years, avoid it. I think six months a year, two years maximum, that's it. Don't go any higher than that, depending on what it is, of course. But we see HR contracts, we see telecoms agreements, managed print service agreements, which can go five years, seven years, eight years sometimes, but they dress it up in months to make it sound less. And the quick glance, you think, oh, that's all right. That's not too bad. But of course, you then work out how many years that is. And you think, shit, that's actually five years. So that's a big one, I think. That's hugely valuable. Thank you for sharing that one. I mean, it kind of comes back, you're just thinking on a day-to-day basis, sometimes you have to click a button. Have you read the terms and agreements? You know, how many people actually take the time to read it? I'm sure very few. But in a business context, when you're actually purchasing you know, business expense, then you really want to make sure that you're getting someone that's used to looking at these contracts that have the time and the dedication and and know what they're looking for. Because even a lay person or someone new to business starting in an agency, they're not going to have the expertise or experience to know what's what really, are they? No, not usually. And that's why it's worth investing, you know, for the sake of, you know, a couple of hundred pounds, whatever it is that the advisor's obviously going to charge. It's a sound investment for sure. You know, so yeah, definitely worth doing. So just final question, because I'm conscious of your time and this has been hugely valuable so far. I'm sure I've taken tons of notes. What do you see as the future of legal services, particularly as they relate to the kind of changing agency landscape? Because it's very dynamic at the moment. Have you noticed any trends? Have you any kind of thoughts on that? Great question and nice one to close on, actually. I think what I'm starting to see, and I think this is where the pandemic has helped really. I'm starting to see more talented lawyers thinking, do you know what? I'm not happy with the traditional model. I'm going to, you know, make the jump, set up on my own, run their own smaller consultancy. There might be one or two lawyers or so. And they're thinking, do you know what? There is a better way of doing this where we can be transparent with fees. We can be flexible and they can also get a much better lifestyle for themselves as well, where they get a better work-life balance. Because I think the legal profession is probably one of the worst professions for work-life balance. You know, it can be highly stressful, really long hours and often for little recognition in return. And hence why the burnout rate, particularly among junior lawyers at the moment, is hideous. And you only need to look at some of these big regional firms and city firms, lift up the bonnet and look at the culture, and you kind of think, "Mm, I can kind of get it. So it's lovely to see that actually there's more and more lawyers now thinking, you know, I'll sod this, I'm I'm going to go it alone. You know, so, you know, I applaud those people that are doing that. And long may it continue. But I think that... The emerging areas would definitely be NFTs, blockchain, Web3, the metaverse. Those are all really hot areas at the moment for technology. And at the moment, I think the lawyers are kind of sitting there thinking, wow, you know, this is, you know, a really exciting new project. They don't really know much about it at the moment, but actually keen to explore it. And there's a very, very small handful of firms that are starting to make their mark within those territories now. But I think blockchain's definitely here to stay. I think there's an amazing opportunity with that technology, with this decentralized way of recording data that's nice and transparent and under no particular control of one particular body. I think that's fantastic. You know, I think that could do really well in the future. NFTs, I've not quite got my head around fully yet. I'm on my way to it, but I'm learning a bit more because I love intellectual property law. Just trying to fathom out this concept of spending millions on something that you don't actually own the intellectual property rights per se to. Mm. I'm trying to get my head around that at the moment. I'm sure, you know, someone might be listening that will probably explain that to me at some point. And and obviously Web3, we're going to be attending the Agency Nomics event in November, which we're really excited about. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to obviously some of the experts on Web3 just to learn a bit more about that. So I would say those are the areas for me. 
I think I agree because it is going to be a whole new environment. And also for brand owners as well, because the whole concept of giving your brand to the community for them to then take and add on to change, you know, so it's going to be a completely different scenario. So, yeah, I think it's going to be some some disruption coming up. I mean, again, it's all starting now, but when is it going to hit sort of mainstream? Who knows? Could be 10 years from now. We don't know. But yes, anyone listening, as Ryan's just mentioned, the Agencynomics event is on on the 8th of November, I believe. And I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. Fantastic. So anyone that wants to learn about the future, Web3, NFTs, Metaverse, etc., come along. Listen, Ryan, that has been hugely valuable. I've made tons of notes and I will be passing this along to the agencies I'm working with. If anyone's listening and they think this is really resonating with me, I'd love to have a chat with Ryan. Who would you like to be contacted by and what's the best way of doing that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, well, firstly, thank you very much, Jenny, for inviting me on again. You know, it's, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and I've really enjoyed it. So hopefully the listeners have, have got some value out of today. If anyone does want to get in touch and, and have a chat, uh, the best bet would be to either connect with me on LinkedIn, so it's Ryan Lisk, or alternatively, go on to hybridlegal.co.uk. Uh, you can have a look around the website and just see you know, more about the services that we offer. We will soon be launching a free agency legal health check, You know, which will be nice and easy to fill out. It will be on a type form platform, so nice and easy to go through. And that will actually help agency owners work out you know, from a legal perspective where are they strong and where do they need to actually you know think about improving and we can obviously help them with those areas if they wish but there's no obligation it will just help them get a bit of a steer on how they're standing so i'll let you know when that's when that's live but yeah i would say through the website or through linkedin amazing that sounds really valuable by the way thank you so much we will make sure that we include all those links in the show notes ryan and once again thank you so much for sharing so much value and so many tips our pleasure thanks jenny I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ryan and if you have any questions or doubts that you might not have all of your legal bases covered in your agency then please do contact him on LinkedIn at Ryan Lisk or his website Hybrid Legal and as we've been talking about risk if you want to reduce your client relationship risk and would like to talk to me about account management training then you can contact me through my website accountmanagementskills.com and I'm going to leave the last word to David Stanley the design director from Alive With Ideas, who came on the Account Accelerator program and had this to say about the impact the training has had on him. I'll see you on the next one. My mindset's changed as I don't have that fear factor or too worried about asking questions because I know actually in the whole, it's only going to do good. Definitely confidence, um, massively and not only externally but internally as well um so with my other colleagues but also with my directors and just kind of um asking them questions to be honest i've always asked them questions but asking questions from that kind of account sales direction you know pipeline type point of view i'm asking those them questions that i wouldn't have normally 